Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. It feels like the divide between ultra-Orthodox and secular Jewish Israelis has never been wider or deeper than at the present moment. Today on the podcast, we'll explore the reasons why and exactly how worried we should be about the escalation of this internal conflict, which has unfolded over the past week on all kinds of different levels, starting from political rhetoric to some actual physical violence. Joining me to lay it all out and discuss the situation is my colleague, Judy Maltz, a senior correspondent here at Haaretz, who has been brilliantly covering religion state issues for many, many years. Hi, Judy. Hi, Allison. Great to be on again. And I am delighted to welcome Uri Kedar, who is the executive director of Israel Chofshit. That translates into Be Free Israel. It's the largest grassroots movement in Israel in the field of religious freedom and pluralism. Hi, Uri. Hi. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, Judy, let's start with the big picture, and then we can talk about some of the specific incidents over recent days. The protest against the judicial reforms on several occasions now has held marches from their main base of operation in Tel Aviv into the neighboring ultra-Orthodox city of Bnei Brak. Can you tell me why they've been doing that, how it's related to the battle over the national budget, which goes to a vote this week, and talk about a little bit in general how judicial reform and religious secular tensions are connected? So we have a couple of things going on here. First of all, the judicial reform that everybody is ostensibly protesting is kind of off the table for the meantime. There are uh, negotiations taking place under the auspices of the president's house, and meanwhile, nothing is happening with it. Many Israelis would probably tell you that it's not going to happen. But still, you've got all this energy and all these people in the streets, and kind of they were looking for another cause to channel all this energy through. And the ultra-Orthodox provided them with just what they were looking for, um, and, and that's the budget. Now, every single year that we have what are called these discretionary funds that are handed out to certain parties that are in the coalition, and it's part of their payback for sitting in the government. And the ultra-Orthodox have always gotten these funds. What's different this year is, number one, the amount of funds they're getting. It's unheard of, unprecedented. Uh, If in the past we were talking about maybe a billion, Ori, am I wrong? Something closer to a billion than to 15 billion. Right, right, a billion shekels, okay? Now we're talking about, you know, an exponential increase in the amount of money they're getting. And and also the, the thing is, what are they getting it for? So, so yes, there are stipends for yeshiva boys and adult ultra-Orthodox men who spend um, their lives studying in yeshiva um, rather than working. But there are also now a lot of funds going to schools that do not teach any core subjects. They don't teach math. They don't teach science. They don't teach English. And at the same time, they want more and more money uh, not to be subject to supervision and not to teach any basic subjects, basically to uh, create another generation of very ignorant young Israelis who may know how to study Talmud but don't know anything besides that. Now, you were asking me, how does this all connect to the judicial reform. Well, 
here's how it connects. In the past, and even today, before the judicial overhaul up until now, you know, if something was passed in the Knesset that was openly discriminatory to the um, secular working population, they could go to the Supreme Court or to the High Court and uh, petition. And um, very often, they won, okay? What this judicial overhaul was about was really to prevent that. The, the government in power today does not like the fact that citizen groups and a lot of secular citizen groups, even the reform movement very, very often, and conservative movement, they go to the high court to um, prevent discrimination against themselves, and they've won some major verdicts in their favor. This would not be able to happen if this government had its way and was able to push through this judicial coup. Uri, so is there this really strong undercurrent that at least I seem to observe of the religious, secular, ultra-Orthodox, secular divide in this whole protest movement? And how do you see the two issues as being related? And how is this budget battle different from other budget battles? Is it really worse? Is it really different? Can you lay out the, the political situation for us? First of all, I think we need to remember that it's not only about the ultra-Orthodox um, parties. We also have pretty extreme national religious parties within the same coalition who aren't less extreme, aren't less problematic from our point of view, aren't less supportive of religious coercion. Um, and they are in this bundle alongside with the ultra-Orthodox parties um, and are part of what the general public is now calling the big looting uh, of the of the state budget. We're seeing stuff that, as Judy mentioned, were unimaginable up, up until recently and are just off the charts. Yeah, there were coalition funds at the past, and yeah, we know that this is part of how the system works, but this is above and beyond everything that we have ever seen. Um, and it's happening pretty much like on a daily basis now. Just um, a couple of days ago, we heard for the first time um, that for the holiday of Shavuot, uh, our newly appointed minister of Jerusalem Affairs and Tradition or something like that, because we now have so many of those that I don't always remember which is who. He announced that he is going to fund groups larger than 300 who will go to Jerusalem on Shavuot, which is less than four days from now, um, and will stay in the city for more than one night, which pretty much, other than saying I'm giving money to my friends, <laughs> is sort of everything is up in the air. Um, we, we sent a letter, just as Judy mentioned, saying that we heard this, we're going to petition. If this moves forward even an inch, then we're not going to, to allow it. Um, and then the, this morning, the Ministry of Finance said that they looked into it and said, ah, we're not we're not allowing it. And this is the same minister, Minister Porsche, who was leaked from a government uh, meeting um, last week that he said that he's owed in the coalition agreement a quarter of, of a billion shekels, which he stated is his. And he will not be told how to use that by professionals who are unappointed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so I think this is where it all touches back to the judicial overhaul, because what these people are looking for is a power which are without any other veto players, without anyone else saying, 
uh, we don't think that you can just give the state funds to your friends to come over to the holiday. Right. So just to explain, you say that if this Shavuot party went forward, that you would go petition. You would petition to the high court who then potentially could rule it as an illegal thing to do or, you know, who could strike it down. And what the judicial overhaul would do would be to take away your ability to petition. The judicial overhaul is, we need to remember, is not an end by itself. It's a means to an end. The end is for those people who are not representative of the Israeli public, who are extremely the most religious, most extreme government we ever had, um, to be able to do pretty much whatever they want. And, and as Judy mentioned already, it's not things that we haven't seen in the past at all, but the amounts and the actual like breaking of, of any sorts of limits is what gets people to the streets as I see it. And I, I think I would go back just a few steps and say that it, it's also seen as an opportunity among the religious parties that are in this government that may never repeat itself because this is the most religious and most ultra-Orthodox and most right-wing government that we have ever had. And we, we, we all see the polls now. Uh, there's not going to be an election probably in the next few months, but if there were, we know that the, they, they would lose. They would lose terribly. And they see this. This is our last chance to just milk the system for everything it's worth. And yeah. the prime minister has no ability to form an alternative government without them because all of the opposition parties from the furthest left to the furthest right would refuse to sit in a government with Netanyahu. So he, Netanyahu doesn't have a choice. He's stuck with them and they're taking advantage of this or you know, feeling like it's their due that they're owed it because they are standing so uh, loyally by him. But, but even though they have been threatening in recent days to pull out a few of them, we all know. I mean, what, what are they going to do? What, what is their alternative government to go? with the labor and merits, right? So, yeah. you know, they need him too because they don't have an alternative. In previous years, they might have. Yeah, and, and as you just said, it's a highly unpopular um, set of demands and policies. And what we see in the polling is that Likud, Netanyahu's party, is paying the price for this looting, uh, as it's seen by the public, mainly because Netanyahu's voters are the most diverse group of Jewish voters in the country. You have secular voters, you have religious voters, you have traditional voters, you have very small numbers, but also ultra-Orthodox voters. But on the Jewish side of Israel, this is the most diverse group. And for many, many of them, these policies just do not add up. They don't see that as something that they voted for exactly, by the way, the same as the, the judicial coup. Um, and you see the the public backlash, which again is now happening on like three times a day. We need to issue a statement about something. We need to respond to something. Things are happening, and then it's as rapid as it ever was in the past. So the most prominent example of that is this morning television anchor named Galit Gutman. So she's on the air. They're discussing the controversy, and she lets loose with her opinion, saying, how much can you burden a third of this country to support all of the Haredim who are sucking our blood? She says that to a representative of the government. So the ultra-Orthodox community gets furious. She's an anti-Semite. She's defamatory. A lot of pressure uh, to 
to have her fired, to take her off the air. And under that pressure, she offers an apology saying she's sorry from the bottom of my heart if I offended an entire demographic. And she said she was only talking about the leaders, about the people. But there's been a huge amount of support, you know, rallying behind her statements, behind calling the ultra-Orthodox community bloodsuckers. Do you see that as a, as, a, as a change? Is there a sea change in the way that the secular public is speaking out publicly? I think that the statement to itself is an ugly statement. It needs to be said. And with that being said, I also think that many, many people are now looking at what the government is doing and say, yeah, we think that it's an ugly statement, but with all due respect, this isn't like we're not in class in which you need to be civilized. You're tearing the country apart. You're ruining the Israeli economics pretty much, again, on a daily basis. There has been a huge pushback from the Israeli Ministry of Finance against the coalition funding that the government is, is providing to the ultra-Orthodox and to the more religious parties. Um, and you see pretty much everyone sort of with a small to bigger economic education saying these, this is just destructive for the Israeli society and for, for our economy if we want to stay a first world economy, which hopefully we will stay. Um, so, so more and more people are saying, yeah, the statement shouldn't have been made and you don't, you don't say those things. And after they're saying that, they're saying, yeah, but I totally get what she was trying to say. Judy, do you feel like there's less of a taboo against speaking out? I mean, you're covering the, uh, the protest marches. What are people talking about when they talk about the ultra-Orthodox? If you go to the protest march in recent weeks, it's it's a lot less about the whole uh, judicial overhaul plan, and it's a lot more about um, the secular religious divide. And you can see that in the posters that people are holding. And uh, if there's something really interesting and funky about these protests is that most people come with their own signs that they hand make. And you can just see by the signs how, how, how the cause has changed and moved from the judicial stuff. And now a lot of angry, secular people who are saying enough is enough. We're sick and tired of sending our kids to the army while their kids don't have to go. We're sick and tired of paying more and more taxes that go for things not only that we don't believe in, but that we are vehemently opposed to. And this is it. We're not going to put up with it anymore. Uri, do you think Ali Goodman should have apologized? Do you think she was right to apologize? Yeah, I think the apology is fine. And I, I also think that, as you said, a taboo is being broken. And a lot of those things weren't being discussed many, many years um, now and are now back at the table, and it's mainly because of the coalition. The coalition is pushing a lot of people who are still, the like secular Jewish Israelis, are still the biggest demographics in the country by far, and are still the strongest economic demographics by far, are still sitting in a lot of power structures. So these people, as Judy said, had enough. Um, and I think that they have had enough for a while, but now they're feeling as if a lot of these things are just being pushed down their throat. Um, and sort of there was this, I don't like the word status quo, which is often used in, in these discussions, but sort of there was some kind of a situation in which some things did not move forward, but at least they weren't moved backwards. 
And now you see it on, again, every other day you have something which creates national news cycles for hours and hours. Um, and people are saying, yeah, it's gotten too far. And as, as Judy already mentioned, we, we already started a discussion about the, the drafting to the IDF issues, et cetera, et cetera, which will be back on the table after almost a decade. So a lot of those things just go together. And I would say in terms of the taboo, Allison, that, you know, a year ago, if somebody in Israel said something against the ultra-Orthodox sector, they would have been called anti-Semite or a self-hating Jew, and that would have shut them up. Today, it's not shutting them up. And people are saying, no, it is not anti-Semitic to say that the way these people behave or live, there's something wrong with what they're doing or what they are demanding, I should say, probably. Their demands, to to criticize their demands, is not anti-Semitic. Judy, you covered a story last week. Events happen so fast in this country. Last week seems like last year. But you wrote about controversy in the center of Tel Aviv over yeshiva that wants to open there. What is wrong with opening a yeshiva in Tel Aviv? Why was there such a big protest and backlash against it? Well, Allison, it's not even opening a yeshiva. It's about a yeshiva that has already existed in Tel Aviv for 26 years. And all they want to do is move it a few blocks away to make room for a new elementary school where it's been for the past few decades. But what happened is, you know, everything's changed now. People in the neighborhood knew little to nothing about this yeshiva. And according to people I spoke to in the neighborhood, both Uh, not religious people and people who are affiliated with the yeshiva, there was never any uh, bad blood between the two sides. In fact, they didn't have much to do with one another. Uh, But when the plan was announced that this yeshiva would be moved a few blocks away and to a very small street, in in contrast to where it is today, some of the soon-to-be neighbors started doing a little research on Google and noticed that the head of this yeshiva was a supporter of uh, the very radical religious Zionist party, and specifically the faction that is affiliated with a rabbi known as Avi Maoz, who who has since become known as a very well-known homophobe in Israel. And, you know, like, like most Tel Aviv neighborhoods, there are a lot of gay people who live in this neighborhood and they were outraged. How is this happening? How are you moving a uh, yeshiva headed by a guy who follows Israel's most famous homophobe into the middle of our neighborhood? Now, usually, you know, you would probably have a few people from the neighborhood who come out and protest. But because, you know, these are different times, you had the whole national protest movement latch onto this because, after all, it is Tel Aviv, which is still the secular, liberal capital of Israel. On the other hand, this is a yeshiva following in the teachings of a famous homophobe. And, you know, you, there were 100 people out on the street on a Sunday evening. Sunday's a weekday here in Israel, I should note. 100 people blocking traffic. It was very loud. And an hour or two before it even happened, the mayor caved in, Mayor Ron Holdai, who had authorized the relocation of this yeshiva. And he said, we're, we need to reexamine it. Because 
We have municipal elections coming up in a few months, so he understood he could be in big trouble for this. But um, I'm not sure the story is over there, and I think we're going to start seeing it in other cities as well, where you have these yeshivas in the middle of very secular populations, you know, Haifa, Ramat Sharon, Ramat Gan. Ori, did this play out differently than in the past? Yeah, it definitely did. Uh, ma- mainly, we're, and, and as I think, an aspect that, that needs to be understood, we're talking about the yeshiva is getting a land allocation from the city. Um, and the neighbors are saying, if that's a public domain, then we have other ideas of what this place needs. And mainly, we just don't want these um, kind of ideas around our kids. And you see that, as Judy mentioned, it's not even a new yeshiva. Um, and, and it was seen and portrayed, by the way, among some of the municipal leaders um, that Judy already mentioned, as something that is like a technical move. You're talking a building from this side of the street to the other side of the street. Why should we care? And all of a sudden you have so many people saying, um, yeah, we do care now and we are going to do something about it and we are going to use our abilities to block this in whatever way we can. And I think that the mayor tried for a while to just ignore this move and understood that, as we already said, on October 30th, we're going to municipal elections here. Um, And he's going to be on the ballot really soon. Um, And like other people uh, in the municipalities in Israel, they understand that these elections are going to be somewhat of a midterm elections here in Israel. Um, and are going to be the first time in which people get the chance to vote after the government was formed, probably, unless we'll have a national elections, which I think we won't have uh, up until then. So many people are situating themselves according to that and are, are planning their campaigns, and everything that's happening catches fire like it never happened before. So speaking of which, a few days ago in the northern, not super north, but uh, kind of in the in the lower north of the country, the city of Kharish, relatively new city, there was an attempt being made to make this into a mixed city, a city that includes secular people, that includes national religious people, and that includes ultra-Orthodox people. And that comes on a background of for years they were trying to make it more ultra-Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox contractors were trying to make it exclusively ultra-Orthodox and failed. So it's a new mixed city. So there's a shopping center there and there's a gymboree for children to play and it's open on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, on People's Day Off. And people from there are bringing their kids to play there. And it seems that over the past few weeks and months, reaching a peak over this past Shabbat, extremist sect uh, Toledot Aharon is the, is the ultra-Orthodox sect start showing up there en masse, men and boys coming to the gymboree and yelling and mourning and... Harassing. Harassing, basically, the people who are trying to have their uh, children play there. And this past weekend, uh, apparently came to blows. There was some pushing, there was some shoving. A woman showed up with a broken arm and there were arrests made. This isn't new, right? This is a, a process by which ultra-Orthodox basically intimidate non, I'm not saying non-Orthodox because it also includes the national religious community in cases like Beit Shemesh, and and try to make it an unpleasant place to live. They want Shabbat observed everywhere there. And so they go to these extremes. And again, that caught fire. And we may be looking at hundreds of secular Israelis going up there on future Shabbats trying to protect the children who are trying to play in the gymboree. Yeah, we already saw some numbers that... um close to, I think, 20,000 shekels 
who were put in uh, by people buying tickets. Um, I think we need to say... Um, <laughs> Best thing that ever happened to those Jimbori owners. Yeah, right? I think we need to say that I think most of those people will never show up at the Jimbori. <laughs> They were just supporting the small business owner. Um, but as again, as we mentioned on, on, the other, on the other aspects of it, people are fed up. And what you're seeing here is a backlash of people who are seeing everything that is happening now in the public sphere as an attack on their most basic values. That aligns exactly um, with what you said earlier about the judicial coup. And actually, we can, we can mention the fact that the fact that Harish isn't an ultra-orthodox city is because of the Supreme Court, which said close to two decades ago, it's not going to happen. Um, and we, we are not going to disallow non-ultra-orthodox people to buy a house there. Um, And you also see that that is some of the reaction that I've seen on Twitter, for instance, of people saying the Supreme Court made us make it into a not uh, ultra-orthodox only city that now and now this is what's happening. Um, and more and more Israelis are saying, yeah, this is exactly what's happening and this is exactly why we want to protect the Supreme Court because we think that you can't just do whatever it is that you want um, on, a, on the public sphere. With what happened in Tel Aviv with the yeshiva, and now we've got this Jimbury and Harish, do we need to give up on the idea of mixed cities, of places where secular and national religious and ultra-Orthodox people can all live together because of these continuing friction points? Do we say, oh, we should just, you know, have exclusive cities for this religious level of uh, observance and that religious level of observance? I'm just asking, you know, if we... try to keep people living in proximity of each other, are these kinds of clashes just going to increase and worsen in the current atmosphere? The short answer to your question is no. I think we shouldn't do that. I think we shouldn't segregate populations in that way. Um, but what we are seeing at the moment, I think, is a generation of Israeli liberals who are saying the simple phrase of just say no um, and are saying, okay, we understand that there is such and such a demand from that rabbi Um, from that extremist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we gave it some thought, and the answer is, get the hell out of here. Um, and it doesn't mean that they don't want to live next to different people. It just means that they are not willing to let other people harass them, harass their children, get in the way of their most basic ideas um, of what it means to be a liberal country, and accept the fact that some people just need to be taught at a very older level at an older age, um, that they're not going to get whatever it is that they want, even if they are trying to push people away from their houses. The ultra-Orthodox population has used economic muscle, the ability to boycott, the ability to organize as a means of getting their way. So within the uh, predominantly ultra-Orthodox city of B'nai B'rak, they began putting stickers in a pharmacy, B Pharmacy, which is owned by a larger company, Supersol, which is one of the predominant uh, supermarket chains here, putting stickers on the faces of women and girls and even female babies on packages of diapers, on uh, shampoo bottles, because it's considered uh, immodest to look at these women's faces. The men are going shopping. They don't want them provoked by looking at the women's faces. Presumably when the shampoo is in the shower, they don't want to look at the women uh, on the, the shower bottles. Um, 
And the reaction from the secular public, once this went viral, obviously, these purple stickers on the faces, was to start to organize a boycott of the bee pharmacy and of the Supersol chain to protest this, that they don't want to see women's faces concealed inside uh, supermarkets on products. There have been a lot of court battles over women's faces on billboards, on uh, outdoor signs in public places, but this is taking another step. So what do we think about secular side, you know, weaponizing their buying power and, uh, and calling for economic boycotts of, uh, of businesses that uh, they don't like these practices? I think that we are starting to see the majority wake up. We were, I think, expecting to happen at a certain point. And like a lot of other things, it took the front seat um, much earlier because of this government. And many people are saying we will not accept the fact that the notion of women existing in the public sphere is a problem, is a modesty issue, is something that we will need to discuss. Um, and it's not even a thing that, like usually we need to explain those things via um, the slippery slope ideas. It starts here, it ends up there. Um, we're in the middle of the slope. Uh, we don't even need to look ahead. Um, and what you're describing, again, happening from a nationwide big business, um, huge company, one of the biggest in the country, um, started, by the way, um, with them saying, we need to respect everyone else's culture. It's a multicultural thing. And the public backlash uh, at the beginning was, no, we do not. Um, and then the response, they were saying, okay, we're taking off the stickers, but we're also taking off all the pictures. So you won't need the stickers, um, which I think, by the way, was an embarrassing way to handle the situation and, and like a total misunderstanding of what the public was against. Um, and it took them sort of a, another 48 hours to say, you know what, we got it. We're not going to do this anymore. And I think that this is just the beginning of many, many, many Israelis saying the multiculturalism in which we need to accept the fact that notions that are just not up to speed with the fact that we live in 21st century um, are just not going to be accepted. And we do not care about the fact that this is what some people in the ultra-Orthodox community believe in, want to see, do not want to see. We are over and done with these agendas, and I think that it's an amazing situation. And I think there's another um, backlash happening that uh, may even be more harmful to the interests of the religious and the ultra-Orthodox. And that is a backlash by um, many Israelis who might have considered themselves traditional or uh, even religious. And I'm hearing more and more stories of people who, since November, no longer wear yarmulkes. I've heard of people saying after the chametz law, they were trying to check people's bags for chametz in the hospitals. People saying, if that's the case... I will put a challah on my Passover seder table. In other words, it's pushing people, even people who had a connection to religion, it is just so turning them off that they're going the other way. And I can't believe this is what the intention of the religious parties was. I was going to ask you, Judy, since you cover the diaspora quite closely, until now, overseas Jews, first of all, they don't like to see their brethren in Israel fighting with each other, Jews versus Jews, as opposed to uh, outside enemies. But they've always been very 
active and outspoken, I'm talking about liberal progressive Jews overseas, when it comes to the women of the wall struggle, when it comes to the status of non-Orthodox movements in Israel, all of what we're talking about, is this on their radar? Are there ways that overseas Jewish communities are plugged into this, getting involved in this, care about this? Or is this just because it is such an internal Israeli issue, not something that they hear about or think about? Well, I think they're having a problem processing what's going on. And uh, we saw that quite recently at the Jewish Federation's uh, big um, general assembly, which took place here in Tel Aviv uh, last month. The events of the federations were infiltrated by members of the protest movement. And you, you could just look at their faces while this was going on, and they, they didn't really know what to make of it. You know, on the one hand, you had these protesters telling them, look, we're fighting for Israeli democracy. You people come from democracies. You should be on our side. This is democracy we're fighting for. On the other hand, the protesters were calling the Israeli government uh, you know, dictator, fascist, racist. And I could just see these uh, nice, polite American Jews squirming in their seats there. Well, you know, this is like, you know, you're providing fuel for the anti-Semites when you talk about the Israeli government like that. So I that I think that's part of their ambivalence um, in, in in trying to figure out where they stand on what's going on in Israel. Uri, do you get a lot of? Can't you all just get along when you uh, speak with overseas audiences in the Jewish communities abroad? No, actually, no. Uh, we're getting a lot of go ahead, do your thing signage from people who are connected to our work. I think that Israel is now providing inspiration to a lot of people, um, both from the Jewish community, but also from, from other parts of the world, who are looking at this fight um, for the soul of the nation, which is exactly what it is, and are saying, we are very happy that it is now happening. We understand that it's bloody. We understand that it's messy. We understand that there are consequences. Um, but go ahead and push as far as you can. Uh, because they understand that this is a make-or-break moment. And most of these people might, as Judith said, don't like the tactics, um, but they also don't like Simcha Rotman. Um, and I'm not sure that they are huge fans of the fact that a person who said that he thinks gay couples can be banned from hotels if the owner doesn't like gays. Simcha Rotman uh, supports changing the anti-discrimination law so that it accepts uh, discrimination on religious grounds, which means that that hotel owner could discriminate yeah, against uh, gay couples. Yeah, and, and, and it was very, like he said it, like it's, it's very up in the air. It's not like a misrepresentation of ideas. So I think that the majority of responses that we get are good for you, go ahead, do whatever in, we need, and we're here to help you. And also, I think that from our side, what we now are able to say is that we took a close look at what happened in the States for a while. Um, and we saw religious conservatives saying, we are going to end abortion. And we also saw people saying, yeah, they don't really mean that. And we saw those uh, conservatives saying, no, we definitely mean that. And lo and behold, here it is. Um, so I think that for us, the idea of a threat to the Supreme Court is a threat to our very basic rights is something that we just saw in front of our eyes around the cancellation of Roe versus Wade, which gives us a lot of energy and a lot of very 
very clear understanding that we should take these people very, very seriously. We need to make sure that they are kicked out of positions of power and not to sort of give them the benefit of the doubt that everything that they were discussing up until now might not end up happening because we hope not. Now it's time for the dreaded where are we heading question, the time when I ask you to look in the crystal ball and predict the future. This moment we're in now, do you see it continuing and sustaining? I'm feeling a little bit of exhaustion in the anti-judicial overhaul movement. Uh, Do you feel like this is something that's going to be sustained in the future? Or do you think that we're pushing against, look at the demographics, that this is something that's just inevitably going to, uh, to roll over when it comes to the power of the secular majority in Israel and that there is an inevitable decline going to happen. Personally, it's very it's a very simple question. I have three kids here. Um, I have a daughter. She is seven year old. Um, I want her to live in a country in which she has all the rights and ha- has all the opportunities and is able to do whatever it is that she wants. Even though some people would prefer her not to be sleeveless in the street um, and not to be uh, eligible to do whatever it is that she wants um, in the IDF. So I'm fighting for, for my kids. It's, it's very, very simple. And, and yeah, I think that for a lot of people, just as the instances that you mentioned in Harish and in Tel Aviv, and we have, like, we kind of used a dozen different examples um, happening really on an hourly basis, um, you see more and more people who are outraged, who are becoming active as they never were before in their lives. And I think that the protest might have some shifts. Um, It might change here, it might change there. Um, We're all looking towards October through the municipal elections, again, as a way to put a strong um, push against the government um, and to make cities get more and more um, decision-making done on, on their own part. So I think that, yeah, we're seeing something that probably is a historic moment here in Israel. Um, And I also believe it's a historic moment for the good. Uri, Judy, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having us. Thanks. wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. I'd like to thank my guests, Ori Kedar and Judy Maltz, and my producer and editor, Nahara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Sommer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm.